Well, I, I, I climbed Mount Hood when I was 14. Really? Actually, we, we got blown off when I was 14. I climbed it when I successfully when I was 15. Wow. It's a beautiful mountain. It is, but it's also a mountain that people underestimate. Really? The, the, the week before, we climbed it on a Saturday. The week before we climbed it, one person was killed. The day after we climbed it, two people were killed on the mountain. Oh, so. my gosh. It's like uh, um, two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I climbed Temp. I hiked, I got to I summoned a Temp. Uh-huh. And uh, then the next week, it was the week that we got a bunch of weather. And I had a friend who went and she tried to do the summit and she hiked she only made it to Emerald Lake, and uh, there was they were in waist deep snow. Really? Yeah, this early in the well, season. That's kind of nice because the glacier there, as you know, pretty much disappeared. I know. I couldn't see it. It was gone. You used to be able to go from the summit all the all the way down almost to Emerald Lake on the glacier, but now, nowadays it's gone. So, talk about uh, evidence of warming. Welcome to season two of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this second season, we will be journeying into the spiritual wilds as we explore the theme of wilderness. Joining us around our virtual fireside will be some familiar voices, as well as some new guests to help us rediscover the spiritual power of wild things. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Bristlecone Firesides is recorded in the tiny carpet-covered attic of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, who is our partner for this and future seasons. For more info about SUA and the fight to protect Utah's stunning Red Rock wilderness, visit SUA.org. Our guest today is Rick Turley or Richard Turley Jr. And uh, he, Rick is a storied man who has a, has a lot of experience with the, the institution of the church that we're excited to, to chat with him about. Rick, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and the work that you've participated in? Sure. When I was in high school, I lived in a family of seven children spaced about a year apart. So we didn't have a lot of one-on-one time with our parents. And I got up early one day to participate in an extracurricular activity. And my father was up at the breakfast table and we ate breakfast together. At the time, he was the first state science advisor for the state of Utah. He advised the governor and legislature on you know, energy matters and, and other types of science things. And he, he asked me that question, the parents been asking children for generations, what do you wanna do when you grow up? <laughs> and I said to him, I really don't know. I love every subject in school. I do well in every subject in school. And he said, well, let me offer some advice. It says, I'm up on Capitol Hill all the time advising up there, and I run into people from all walks of life, and I've noticed a commonality. It seems like a lot of them are lawyers. So if you don't know what you want to do in life, you might consider going into law. So I thought, okay, done. So I became a lawyer, and I was practicing law with a Chicago-based law firm that had a Salt Lake office. Graduated from law school in April of 1985, and in December, I got a telephone call from a newly ordained apostle of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Dallin H. Oaks. And Elder Oaks asked me if I wanted to go out to lunch with him. So I went to lunch with him. And to make a long story short, uh, my legal career, active legal career, ended at that point, And I became the managing director of the church's historical department, as it was called at the time. And I had a wonderful uh, 30 years with the church, what's now called the Church History Department. 
during that time, we built the Church History Library. We created the Church Historians Press. We launched the Joseph Smith Papers. We launched the Women's History Series. Uh, I did a lot of writing on the side. I, I wrote, I uh, co-authored a, a book called Massacre at Mountain Meadows, wrote one of the Mark Hoffman forgery murder case called Victims. I co-authored um, or co-edited a series called Women of Faith in the Latter Days and many other, other volumes, as well as uh, working during that time, traveling around the globe. I spent after 10 years of being there, they asked me if I would also take on the family history department. So I ran both departments, was in, oversaw family history for 12 years. During that time, we launched Family Search, Family Search Indexing, created a worldwide network, support system, and so forth. Uh, so it was a very enjoyable time. And then after 30 years, they asked me if I would move from there to public affairs, which I did. I traveled around the around the globe with uh, President Nelson and did other public affairs work during that time. We had uh, in, in our family history operations and later church history operations, and then in public affairs and church communications, which I oversaw, we had global operations. So I've traveled to, I think, close to 100 countries. I have to count wow. 90 to 100, somewhere in that range, and seen much of, much of the world during that time. And then uh, because of my wife's declining health, I retired about a year and a half ago, a little over a year and a half ago. Uh, and I'm spending most of my time now writing. Very cool. Yeah, that's where me and you first met was when you were probably in your last six months of uh, being the director of public affairs. And I came and I gave a presentation to uh, the public affairs and a bunch of other uh, organizations within the, within the church. And so that's where we first met. So that's a little bit of our context. Yes. Um, uh, so I, I want to get into your work with the church later on. Um, but ultimately Briscoe and Firesides is about our relationship with the earth, what, how our faith mediates our relationship with the earth. So what point in your, in your life did you realize that the earth was something that you cared about? And was there any like kind of an inciting experience? Yes. I think from the earliest days of my life, you know, nowadays for the most part, youth spend their early years indoors. I spent most of my early years outdoors. When I was, if you go back to sort of the early days of our country, the, the United States was primarily an agrarian nation until basically the depression pushed people off the farms. And so people tended to live outdoors. They had farmsteads, but those farmsteads were used mostly for periods of inclement weather and for sleeping and taking meals. The rest of the time you were outdoors. And I remember being a child on a farm in Draper, Utah, an area that was then extraordinarily rural. Draper was a very small community with a vast field separating it from Sandy to the north. And so I would spend my time as a child outdoors. We lived in an 1890 uh, constructed red brick Victorian farmhouse. Uh, and when beautiful. every moment I had, I would go out there and my parents would let me. You know, I was six years old and I would just wander through the fields. Um, and nature to me was where I lived. The mountains were in the background. Uh, I, I loved to just study. And so I got really good at seeing, seeing the earth around me, seeing the animals and plants and understanding things. So I just I came to feel as though the earth was my living place. I'm oh, sorry. I'm just enjoying hearing your background and your experience. And it's interesting how much the landscape of Utah has changed. Um, and, you know, I, I would love to see it. I live on a street um, in Holiday that used to be uh, orchards. And so each street is named after 
the kind of orchard that it was. And so I, I always love hearing, you know, people's, people's life history where, you know, they were around when these orchards or these farms existed and I would have loved to see it. Utah sort of became my, my center. We moved when I was about seven, we moved to the Midwest. My father was pursuing a PhD at the time. And so the, for most of my elementary school days, I lived in the Midwest. And again, I lived outdoors. I was living in the forests and the streams, whatever that was around my house. Our parents, you know, in those days, you came home from school. As long as you got your homework done, you left and you come home for dinner and then take off again. And usually about nine o'clock, your parents would expect you home, but they didn't they didn't expect to see you and you wandered everywhere. So I can remember again, wandering the, you know, wading through streams and walking through the forests and, and just sort of making nature my home. As a child, I'd check books out of the library about, you know, kids who lived out of the wilderness. And that was sort of my ideal. Um, and then we moved when I was 11, we moved to Washington state, southeastern part, which is desert. And then I, I lived in, we, our home was on the edge of the desert. So I walk across the street and I'm in unoccupied desert. I wandered all around the desert. And then we moved back to Utah when I was 16. And we lived in the East Mill Creek area. So I could walk from my house up, you know, up Mill Creek Canyon. And I, I had always loved the mountains. I'd, I'd missed those when, I, when we'd moved away. And so that became my space. And then Utah except for four years I've lived in Japan, uh, where I also learned to love nature there, uh, two years as a missionary and two years as a civilian. Um, Utah has been home for me. So if I, had to, if I had to say I had a native landscape, it would be Utah. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Abby, you say that you grew up somewhere that used to be a, a, an orchard. Like, So the, the street that I grew up on used to be an orchard. So I feel like that's probably a common experience for a lot of people that live in Utah is that we grew up on streets that used to be orchards. And part of there, there's almost a tragedy in how how popular Utah is becoming, right? That like that, that experience of having the mountains as our backyard just is, it's not as, it's not as uh, prevalent anymore because like I remember... I'm sure I've said this before in past episodes, but I remember like having kind of the foothills of Provo be my, you know, my backyard and having those irrigation channels that were full of water and just kind of, you know, playing around up there and getting lost and like scraping my knee and drinking irrigation water, which probably I shouldn't have done. But, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, and I, I, there's kind of a, um, you kind of have to mourn the fact that we don't really have that experience anymore unless you live on the, like, oh, yeah. the edges of the community. Well, I can definitely really, I grew up, you know, over kind of uh, near the U of U and Red Butte Creek ran, you know, behind my house and there were six kids in my family. And I think my mom was just like, go play outside. Like, I don't, you know, don't, <laughs> we don't, I don't want you inside while I'm working. So why don't you go outside and play in the stream? And so I can really relate to that, that growing up and just tromping through streams and running around in the backyard and the hills and stuff. So eating dirt yeah. and rocks and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so Rick, uh, you said that you served as a missionary in Japan for two years and you also lived there for two years. And I definitely read your Wikipedia page before we did this interview. And it says that as well. Um, Abby and I have talked uh, before on a, on a past episode about our love for, um, Hayao Miyazaki and some of the, you know, the great artworks that come from Japan. Um, and there seems to be something about the Japanese landscape or Zen Buddhist ideals that kind of refocuses attention in really peaceful ways. Can you talk a little bit about your time in Japan and how it's impacted you and the way you interact with landscape? 
Yes. During my time in Japan, I was impressed by the way the Japanese have integrated themselves into the broader landscape. Only about 10% of Japan is really arable land, and it's mostly coastal or along river plains. The rest of the country is mountainous. So about 90% of the country is mountainous. And they have developed a gardening method, methods that have basically captured the outdoors and made it part of the, the landscape for the urban areas. And they've, they've learned how to take even small spaces and develop those into garden areas. And I, I love, I love when I lived in Japan, I love to get out into the, the green of the mountains. Um, as I mentioned, it's mostly a mountainous area. So there's plenty of areas to hike. There's a lot of water uh, because it's a, it's a country that receives a lot of rain. But I really like they, the Japanese were originally uh, people who were radically different from their neighbors in Asia. And as best we can determine, uh, the, the current people who make up the majority population of Japan today migrated over probably from the Korean Peninsula. And then they began to travel over to China. And about the seventh to eighth centuries, they began to adopt a lot of Chinese culture. So the, the architecture, even the writing system, Japanese is a polysyllabic language with tones a lot like Spanish or Italian, as opposed to say Mandarin Chinese, that is a toned language, monosyllabic. So they took their polysyllabic language, it sounds a lot like Italian, and they borrowed the Chinese writing system, which just did not fit it at all. But they managed to sort of put press it in there. So they borrowed a lot of things Chinese. And one of the things that came across the, the water to Japan was Zen Buddhism. And Zen Buddhism did have a, a major impact on uh, Japanese culture and Buddhism generally. And part of that was a, a respect for nature. Part of it was learning to live in a way that allowed you to ponder simple things and get great meaning out of them. Yeah. I, uh, I've, I am a fan of Buddhism and I've, I feel like I took a humanities of East Asia uh, course while I was at BYU. And I feel like I've, I've read before that Buddhism was born in India and traveled through China and ultimately found its home in Japan. And that something in the confluence of the Buddhist ideals mixed with kind of the Japanese landscape and the Japanese way of living uh, kind of created this perfect, this perfect, soil for Buddhism to really grow into the, you know, what, what we know as Zen Buddhism, um, which I think is super duper cool. Is there any, um, like Japanese forms of like, you know, we referenced Hayao Miyazaki. Do you, uh, are you, are you familiar with Studio Ghibli? I, I know about it. I, I, honestly, when I was in Japan, I didn't spend a lot of time reading mangas and I, I don't, I don't watch a lot of anime, you know, but, uh, the, the Japanese are very interesting people because Zen Buddhism is a part of it's it's one thread in their culture, but they're basically syncretists. They take they take good from a lot of different systems and iron them together. If you if you mm, do <laughs> if you do a poll of Japanese religiously, for example, ninety percent will say they're Buddhist, and ninety percent will say they're Shinto, um, because they you know they basically move from one tradition to another over the period of their lives, depending upon what they're doing. Uh, Shintoism, which was the native religion of Japan, it gave them a, a religion that, that had a belief in animism. And that, of course, uh, the idea that there are spirits in, in 
trees and rocks and mountains and so forth gave them a great respect for nature. And, and what I find fascinating about that is that in our Latter-day Saint tradition, there is also this, uh, this belief that God created the various components of the earth spiritually before he created them physically. You know, the Pearl of Great Price says he created all things spiritually, which means that there is a, a spiritual design or component to all those things that exist. Um, and even the earth is anthropomorphized in the, in the Pearl of Great Price and said to groan and look for a period of time when the, the earth itself gets cleansed and has a paradisical period. So that to me was fascinating as a missionary being in Japan and, and noting what the Japanese picked up. As I was trying to teach them about our church, uh, it was interesting to see the common elements that existed both in Shintoism and in Buddhism. I mean, you would often, for example, if you visit a shrine in Japan, often these shrines are Shinto shrines. They might have, for example, a rope tied around an old tree, a very old tree, showing their respect for that ancient life form that's there and that in their minds had a spirit and should be, should be preserved and protected and not looked at just as a, a resource to be exploited. I have a lot of holy envy for that shrine, for shrine practice. I just, when I'm on hikes and stuff, I'd be like, you know, I would love to have some kind of a shrine here where I could just kind of bring some offerings and stuff. But I know that's very, it's very unchristian. <laughs> Abby, were you going to say something? Well, I was just going to say, I think, you know, you mentioned that they are, that this like love for nature is very well integrated into their, their kind of culture, um, but also in their art too. Um, you know, I, I remember also learning kind of in, in college and whatnot that um, their art often represents humans still in their landscape paintings. I think it's um, pretty common that in, you know, westernized uh, representations of nature, we often like to exclude um, human representation, but that, you know, Japanese culture is such that they still like to include and incorporate these two um, kind of elements together um, as a more inclusive representation of, of landscape that, you know, humans are um, very much a part of that. And, and I've always loved that because it allows space for both to kind of cohesively exist. And so, um, yeah, I love that. And that's very much influence their architecture and their their landscape architecture as well. For example, if you just think of an average American living room, typically we have furniture such as a sofa and a couple of chairs and a table for putting something on. In what direction do those pieces of furniture face? They face the table, they face inside, they face away from the window. Whereas in Japanese architecture, they have sliding walls. And when they, when they design their homes, they design them so that they can slide the walls open, creating a large continuum between their living spaces and nature surrounding them. So that they borrow that sense of nature into their homes and they, they face the outdoors and have the outdoors consistently in front of them. And so to me, that's a wonderful architectural element, this idea of facing the outdoors and bringing the outdoors inside and having large windows or even movable walls that allow you to make nature and your home all part of your living space.
So uh, I want to talk a little bit about your your time uh, while you were employed with the church. So from like you like you said from uh, 1986 till your retirement a couple of years ago, you were employed you're employed by the church and you started with the history department and you ended with public affairs. Um, those are two pretty different pieces of the church. Uh, and w- so, what were your favorite parts of either, or are there any challenges you don't miss? Well, <laughs> I've been called a polymath. I, I yeah. as I told my father when he was asking me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I've I read widely. Always have always been interested in a wide range of, of topics. And so it was fascinating to me in my various roles at the church to be able to integrate various bodies of knowledge. I often I'm an innovator by nature. And I one of the things I was uh, most happy about during my church career was being able to innovate and to create things like the church history library and all of the projects that that uh, we, we initiated there, such as the Joseph Papers and the Family History Side, Family Search and creating these sort of global things. And where, what I discovered over time reading is that often innovation occurs in the seams between disciplines. You know, sometimes we, we my father, as I was growing up, he was a very wise man, he used to say to me, you know, the problem with our educational system is that it forces us to learn more and more about less and less until we know everything about nothing. And he's just pointing out that idea that we have to specialize. You know, you start off in elementary school learning general things, and even through high school, then you have to pick a major. And then as you go up through graduate school, by the time you get to the PhD dissertation, uh, and and, and try this, you know, next time you go to a graduation, turn to the back and look at the dissertation titles. The titles are so esoteric as to be understood only by a small number of people in the same discipline and maybe even in the same sub-discipline. And there's something wonderful about that, because by the time you get to the doctorate level, you've been able to plumb where no person has gone before. And that's exciting intellectually. But I made up my mind very early on in my career that I was going to try to be a generalist, what I call a self-conscious generalist. I would surround myself with specialists because we, we need specialists. But we also need some people who sort of step back and are always looking at the big picture. And that's what I always tried to be. And I found that that actually helped me uh, with innovation. I could see seams among disciplines where work could be done that might be avoided when people are pulling to the center of their discipline. So if you think of all the disciplines as circles on a chart, people tend to pull into the center of the discipline because that's where the recognition is. That's where the, the work's being done. But I often discovered that if you take two disciplines and you saw where they overlapped or where there's a space between them, you could plumb that and find some way in which to innovate and make things better. I resonate with that a lot because uh, when I went into school, uh, so I, so my my undergrad was in interdisciplinary humanities, and it's because when I first got into school, I looked at through all the I looked through all the uh, the the majors, all the the programs, and humanities was the only one that like had enough in it that like could hold my interest, right? And uh, I I have definitely found that you know that that idea that. The, it, on the on the boundaries where kind of on the boundaries of disciplines where disciplines mix are is very fertile kind of ground. Um, I was just at this last weekend. I was at a, a writers workshop at in SUU. Um, where it was uh, we we had a biologist along with some writers, and we were talking about riparian zones, which are these zones between water and land. Um, and she, the biologist was talking to us about how, you know, how generative that, that biological process is. And so then we were able to relate it to the, the, you know, the, the kind of the cross pollination between, um, the humanities and science is also this really generative place. So like, I, I really resonate with that a lot. I'm sure Abby can as well. 
Oh yeah, definitely. I th- I think, you know, that's another reason I majored in interdisciplinary humanities, but also the reason that, you know, my, my comparative literature um, is a little bit outside of the bounds of normal comparative literature between two language, but rather languages, but rather between two disciplines, you know, the humanities and the sciences, because I just always feel like, how do we, you know, connect these two with one another um, and make them more approachable for people who are outside of those boundaries? I, I find the same frustrations within, um, you know, the same discipline where, you become so specialized at something that that means nothing to someone else who doesn't all who 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 doesn't have the same information that you have and um, hasn't studied it to the same degree that you have. And so, yeah, I can definitely um, <laughs> concur that that's how I feel as well. Are there any challenges you you don't miss about your 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 roles at, with the church? Well, because of the way I approached life from my high school years on, it seems as though I was frequently in the public eye. And in my in my <laughs> roles with the church, and I was in my late 20s when I became the head of a major church department. And that just sort of catapulted me into the public eye. And constant phone calls, constant emails, constant texts. And after a while, I, th- I think humans, humans by nature need solitude. You know, they need a chance to just be able to sort of back away and think. And I do that best in nature. And so one of the things that I like about my retirement, I'm still working hard, I'm writing, but I have much more flexibility over my environment, you know, places where I can go and enjoy uh, the environment as I'm writing. So I don't miss the, the busyness. Um, I, I much prefer the solace and the solitude that I have now to the busyness that I had before. Yeah, I don't think I would enjoy the barrage of um, emails and, and phone calls that <laughs> that probably accompanies that, those positions. Um, as far as you know, your work in with the LDS historical records—that's something that you know not a lot of people have access to, um, especially within the church. Um, and, and you've managed nearly every archive, um, library, museum, and vault that the church has. Uh, I guess one question we have is what have you kind of learned about this, this process of growth and, um, and change within the church during that time as you've managed those different records or, or had access to them? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Let me sort of break it into pieces. First of all, let, okay. me, let me talk about access one of the things that I'm very uh, happy about the time that I spent there is that we have dramatically increased the access to the church's records. Uh, we've taken the, the various historical records and we have digitized a vast number of them and, and millions are being digitized every year and put up online. So we've used, we've been able to combine technology with original records to create a system whereby People, what I used to tell some of my staff was, look, what we want to do is instead of becoming a destination location where people have to get on an airplane and come and visit us, we want to get to the point where people can access our information, access our records in their pajamas and stocking feet in the middle of the night. And yes, so I love that. <laughs> that that's sort of become the, the goal over time. And uh, the, the Departments that I oversaw, church history and family history, they don't spend a lot of time trumpeting what they're doing, 
but they are putting millions of records every year, millions of pages of records online for us to use. One of my one of my friends, a historian who passed away recently, he was working on a book about native voices in the West. And when I purchased a copy of his book and had him sign it, his inscription to me said something like the following, uh, thank you for your help, without which this book would have done much, been done much faster. <laughs> what, he, what he meant by that is he told me privately, he said, all these records you put online have forced me to go back to the drawing board and vastly expand my research. I had a small corpus of materials I was writing a book about, and you gave me a vast corpus that I then had to digest in order to, to have the book. So that's one area that I was most happy about during my, my career was being able to vastly expand access to information. In terms of what I learned, there is a, for, for those listening who might be Latter-day Saints, there's a scripture, Doctrine and Covenant section 93, verse 24, that defines truth as a knowledge of things as they are, and as they were, and as they are to come. I think one of the most profound things I learned in 30 years of being immersed in a way that perhaps no other human being in our, in our lifetime has been immersed, um, I have been able to see things as they were and things as they are and get some sense for things as they will be because of the positions that I've had. And I don't know anybody else who spent 30 years immersed in church historical sources and then time with things as they are, you know, being right at the center point, the hot spot of the church in terms of what's going on, things as they are, nor anyone who during that entire time of you know, about three and a half decades has been uh, working face to face with our church leaders who are responsible for deciding how things are going to be in the future. And what that gave me was a perspective. I think sometimes as Latter-day Saints, we think that the way things are is the way they have always been and the way they will always be. When in fact, what you see if you study history and the way things are changing in the present is that there is tremendous change that occurs over time. And when you have that perspective, it allows you to understand the church and understand what it has done and what it is doing and what it's going to do in a way that you can't get if you're just sort of focused on the way things are at the moment. So I encourage people to study the past and study the present and study widely. You know, Alexander Pope's famous couplet, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Most people have heard that, but I know very few people who can quote back to me the second line of the couplet. So let's try you two. A little knowledge is a dangerous <laughs> thing. What's the next line? I have no idea. Do you know, Madison? I'm just going to guess. A lot of knowledge is a generative thing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <Good> try. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Drink deeply or drink not at all from the Perean Spring, meaning, meaning the spring of wisdom. Uh, I could tell you the history of what Perean Spring is, but basically just think of it as the fount of wisdom. And... I deeply agree with that. I think we need to drink deeply from the springs of knowledge and drink across a wide spectrum of disciplines, which is what I personally do. I read widely, I, and that includes in current events. I read lots of different points of view, and I read widely in terms of subject disciplines. You know, one day I might be reading math, another day I might be reading literature, and the next day science, you know, next day uh, I might be reading something about art or architecture. And 
I think that's where I've found my greatest satisfaction when it comes to the intellect is combining all of those subjects and stepping back and seeing them in their wholeness. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I feel like in somewhere else in the doctrine and covenants, it says to, you know, seek you out of knowledge out of the, the best books, right. And to things of the earth, in the earth, above the earth, below the earth, that kind of stuff. Um, cause I feel like what, just like we were saying before that the earth, that our, all of our knowledge sources have become so specialized that we're all just a bunch of hammers looking for nails, right? That we're so, we're just a, we're just a tool. Like, so I love cooking, right? And uh, there's this, that, that chefs who love cooking hate tools that only have one use, right? And so most like at home chefs who are like really happy and confident in the kitchen have, they, they have tools that will do many, many things and they can do a lot of things with just a kitchen knife, right? And so the only tool in my kitchen that only has one use is a, is a garlic press. Um, but anyways, but that's just to, to, uh, to, uh, uh, exemplify, I think the problem is that we've all become so specialized that we just have drawers full of tools that only have one, you know, single uses that we, we lose sight of the bigger picture. And I think you're right that it, as we become students of history and as we become students of the much larger picture, I think you're right that, you know, if there's one law of the universe that is main, you know, been consistent over billions of years, it's the change. Change is the nature of reality. And then you can only get a sense of that change if, is if you can like, if you can get a, a get a, a feel for the momentum of history as it moves forward, right? And if you're just locked here in the present, you don't get a you don't get to feel that momentum moving forward. Yes. Yeah, that that scripture you're quoting is in Doctrine and Covenants section 88. When I was when I was uh, in my last semester of high school, I was applying for a scholarship at BYU, named after the president of the church at that time, Harold B. Lee, and we submitted our applications and then 30 of us were flown in from various parts of the world for a multi-day competition on site in which they put us through a wide range of different types of activities. They were looking for well-rounded people, put us through a wide range of different activities and then walked around with clipboards and took notes on us. Talk about being self-conscious. <laughs> you know, we're talking about academic games, uh, brainstorming sessions, a basketball game, a, a talent uh, program <laughs> and somewhere in all of that, and there's a testimony meeting. I remember the testimony meeting. I cited that scripture from Doctrine and Covenants 88 about the knowledge, about the importance of having a wide range of knowledge. Uh, it was well embedded in my psyche then, and it's continued to guide the way I've looked at the world. Hey, all. Thanks for joining us around the fireside to talk about things big and small. An important part of Bristlecone Firesides is putting our faith and spirituality in contact with the earth that unites us. So we'd love to keep in touch with you in the future, whether it's to share a simple call to action, send an occasional exclusive behind the scenes update, or ask you for your input on the future direction of Bristlecone Firesides. To stay in the loop, text us the phrase Fireside Utah to 52886. We won't fill up your messages, but when we do send you something, we promise it's going to be good. That's F-I-R-E-S-I-D-E, Utah, to 52886. We're looking forward to keeping in touch with you as a member of this incredible community. And so as, you know, we've, we've talked about history, um, they say that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. 
Uh, is there anything you see in us as Latter-day Saints, in our culture, in our in our society, that we are doomed to repeat until we learn from it? <laughs> yes, and it's particularly intense right now, and that is the tendency to towards tribalism. I, I again, this is a little bit of what I was saying about specialization. People have specialized on current events in such a way that they have fine-tuned their social media so that the only information they're getting is information that confirms their individual bias, whatever it happens to be, which has led to a massive intolerance for other points of view. I, I mentioned that I read widely. I read a wide range of viewpoints because I think it's very dangerous for us to insist on what is called confirmation bias. <laughs> you know, we, we think a certain way, everything we hear convinces us of that. All of the people that who are our friends in our social media feeds share that same opinion. And therefore, when we hear something that's even slightly different from what it has become our specific line, then we react emotionally in an explosive sort of way. And I think that humanity in the long run progresses further when people cooperate towards a good end rather than when they descend into tribalism, which, which ultimately leads to massive conflict and even war. Yeah, I love, I love that. And I mean, I think we even saw that mentioned in the most recent conference as well. And, um, you know, maintaining that kind of um, uh, understanding that you need to, you know, address a wide source of, of information for your, for, um, you know, where you're, where you're gleaning information from, excuse me. But it just reminds me of, I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson who said that even Google is our, is the worst confirmation bias because we can type in, you know, why is X bad? And then of course, any search, um, you know, result is going to confirm why that thing is bad as opposed to give you, you know, alternative viewpoints on it as well. And so and the advance of technology is wonderful. I mean, I'm an early, I'm an early adopter. So I love technology. My father was an early adopter and, I, and I'm that way. But I think we also have to be aware of the downsides of, of, of technology. Here's a good example. So when you're doing the Google search that you're talking about, at least you get a set of results, perhaps in the millions. Rarely do people go mm -hmm. past the first page, although sometimes I think they probably should. But when we moved a few years ago to voice activated searching, we asked Siri or Alexa or someone else, we are returned only one search result generally. And that mm -hmm. means that our ability to see a wide range of ideas is being narrowed by the technology inadvertently. So we always have to be aware of the, of the downside of the technology that we, we use and love. I'm not suggesting we abandon it. As I said, technology is a wonderful thing, but we need to be aware of the downside as well as the upside. Yes, I agree. A small plug for one of my recent favorite books that I've read, The Coddling of the American Mind. It talks extensively about this and this issue. And I, I feel like it's completely reframed how I think about, um, you know, sourcing information and, and thinking about different topics and things, um, different viewpoints. So, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Well, I think there's even some spiritual lesson in that as well that, you know, I think tri if tribalism is kind of the, the fragmenting of our communities into these tiny little, you know, we're, we're finding smaller and small, smaller circles to like to, to belong to, um, that I think what 
well, at least on the first season of the podcast, we talked about trying to find the biggest circle that we can belong to, right? And our, our membership in the family of the earth as, as children of God and of heavenly parents, that is the biggest circle that we can belong to. And if we can, if we can root our identities in that big circle, rather than these tiny circles, we can, we can extend to each other a little bit more compassion, especially as we, you know, we talk about these issues, you know, that, that, are very charged these days and we're very, you know, we're very divided on them, but they are, they are important issues, but we can, I think if we can root our identity in that largest circle, we can extend each other a little bit more compassion um, and generosity. I agree. And I think that that's an important lesson of history that again, if we don't learn it well, we're going to descend into another period of, of massive conflict, not only in our country, but throughout the world that's ultimately leads to the destruction of nature. I mean, if you think about it, war is one of the most destructive things on earth. When you when people begin to try to destroy each other, they destroy the surrounding landscape. And some things are almost unrecoverable, at least in the short run. Yeah, I mean, not just to, you know, call back to nuclear nuclear destruction in Japan. I mean, that every nuclear bomb test is an, is an environmental catastrophe in its own way, especially when you consider radiation drifting in the wind and stuff that it's just an absolute catastrophe. My father uh, had a PhD in nuclear engineering. So I grew up playing with Geiger counters and pieces of uh, uranium and so forth. <laughs> uh, I got the, when I was a boy scout, I got the atomic energy merit badge. So I think I, I grew up knowing more about nuclear energy than anyone else. I have great hopes for, some ways in which we might get some clean nuclear energy in the future, but the old style nuclear energy is extremely polluting. And if you study science, you realize that once you have dirtied something with nuclear um, filth, it takes a very, very, very long time for the half-life to be reached and for it to you know, even be half tolerable. So I'm, it frightens me, that type of, of uh, filth that's created. Yeah. Um, switching gears or at least continuing the the thought of, of change and progress, you know me, I'm an activist, right? So I work for an environmental nonprofit um, and that part of my work is to try and, uh, you know, instig instigate and, and help foster along change in my community, um, both in and outside of the church. And I think in environmental circles, at least LDS environmental circles, there's kind of this general assumption that if someone in the first presidency of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles like spoke directly about environmental issues in like conference or something, that it would move the needle in the general public's mind, um, and that we would like finally be able to get behind you know environmental issues as a people. However. I'm not really convinced of that anymore because as we've seen over this last year with vaccines and masks, um, that I'm not sure, uh, that is, is, as sure as we thought it. Um, so what in your mind, uh, or well, first, do you have any thoughts on, on that? Yes, I do. I have a lot of thoughts on that. So <laughs> let, let me just begin by saying this. Occasionally you will hear a message from a very senior church leader that touches on, on those important subjects. But for the most part, they're going to be focused on the basics of the doctrine of Christ, faith, repentance, baptism, and other ordinances such as are performed in the temple, um, and helping church members live their day-to-day -day lives. That being said, I, I do think that there is plenty of room uh, in the history and theology of the church for individual members to take up the cause of stewardship of the earth. 
you know, if you go back and you look at the history of the church, you, you find, for example, a, a lot of respect for nature. Yeah, there's a, there's a wonderful uh, scripture that appears in Moses chapter 6, verse 63. This is God speaking, and he says, And behold, all things have their likeness, and all things are created and made to bear record of me. Both things which are temporal and things which are spiritual, things which are in the heavens above, and things which are on the earth, and things which are in the earth, and things which are under the earth, both above and beneath, all things bear record of me. And I, that, I resonate to that because that's how I felt as a youngster, you know, walking through the landscape of my life. I, I felt that everything around me was a, was a miracle and something that deserved respect. And I'm intrigued as a Joseph Smith scholar, I'm intrigued that we often talk about Joseph Smith, but we rarely quote these lines from his earliest history, written probably in the summer of 1832. He was talking about the challenges that he was facing religiously in terms of his own uh, burden of sin that he was carrying and his desire to find a church that might help him be absolved of those. And this is what he wrote. And keep in mind, if you've ever been back to his home, he was living in a log home on the edge of old growth New York Forest, which they were trying to develop into a farm. And so there was old growth New York Forest all around him. And that's where he lived. They had a small log home, but they didn't spend most of their time there. They spent most of their time outdoors. So listen to this very carefully. I looked upon the sun, the glorious luminary of the earth, and also the moon rolling in their majesty through the heavens and also the stars shining in their courses, and the earth also upon which I stood, and the beast of the field, and the fowls of heaven, and the fish of the waters, and also man walking forth upon the face of the earth in majesty, and in the strength of beauty, whose power and intelligence in governing the things which are so exceeding great and marvelous. And when I considered upon these things, my heart exclaimed, well hath the wise man said that it is a fool that saith in his heart there is no God. My heart exclaimed, all these bear testimony and bespeak an omnipotent and omnipresent power, a being who maketh laws and decreeth and bindeth all things in their bounds, who filleth eternity, who was and is and will be from all eternity to all eternity. And when I considered all these things, and that that being seeketh such to worship him as will worship him in spirit and in truth, Therefore, I cried unto the Lord for mercy, for there was none else to whom I could go and to obtain mercy. And the Lord heard my cry in the wilderness. So this is his lead up to the first vision. He basically said he was living in the wilderness and looking at all the things around him and finding inspiration in those things. And that's what helped to drive him to ask God his questions quote, in the wilderness, close quote. That is my, my favorite of the accounts of the first vision because it, it grounds the, it grounds Joseph in the earth. Uh, and it, uh, it also connects his experience to experiences had by spiritual leaders all across the world throughout time. Right. Um, and, uh, I love his language there. It's just, it's very transcendent. And he continues to you know, look at nature throughout his entire life. When they're on the 1834 Camp of Israel March, what we today call Zion's Camp, they encounter a rattlesnake. 
And of course, in those days, most westward travelers encountering a rattlesnake would try to shoot it or beat it to death. And Joseph Smith said, no, we can't do that. We need to learn to live in harmony with the wild creatures around us. So he insisted that they pick up the creatures and not with their hands, but with a tool and move them off their path, but allow them to go about uh, what they what they do in life. Uh, and I, I was a uh, among my many interests as a child was herpetology. I used to uh, spend a lot of time looking at reptiles and amphibians uh, and coming to understand what their role is in the in the landscape at a time when most of my friends around me hated snakes and other animals and sought to kill them. I, I sought to help them uh, live. And as you know, this, this idea of earth stewardship that started with Joseph Smith, it continued when Brigham Young and that original 1847 pioneer company was going across the plains, they encountered bison. And you know, the story of bison is a, is a very complicated one. I'm reading a wonderful book, a cutting edge book that's just been written about that subject, about the sort of perfect storm that led to the demise of the bison. But of course, one of the things that led to the demise, one of many things, was the wanton slaughter of bison by not just the later market hunters, but also people crossing the plains who would just shoot to kill because there were lots of them and they thought they'll never run out. And intriguingly, there is a scripture in the Doctrine of Covenants. This is uh, something that uh, Joseph Smith recorded in 1831. This is very early in his career. And this is the scripture. This is, again, the voice of the Lord. And woe be unto that man that sheddeth blood or wasteth flesh and hath no need. What God is saying here in this verse is, do not waste animals. Do not shoot them unless you have need for the food. Um, and interestingly, as they're crossing the plains, Brigham Young notes the excitement. The original Pioneer Company starts off with 143 men and... It's mostly men. They add some families as they go along. But when those men begin to get see their first evidence of bison, they immediately want to hunt. They want to shoot. They want to kill. And Brigham Young becomes concerned about their desire to waste flesh, contrary to this commandment. And so he, he pulls them together, and he says to them, if we slay when we have no need, we will need when we cannot slay. Basically saying to them, we need to be good stewards of the earth. And when they got to the Salt Lake Valley, there were not, contrary to popular belief that there were no trees in the valley, there were trees in the valley. I mean, along the streams, there were cottonwoods and there were, this myth developed later on that there was only one tree in the entire Salt Lake Valley. That's not true, that's myth. But he knew that with the influx of, Latter-day Saint pioneers, the trees would disappear very, very quickly. And so he put basically guard posts at the mouth of the canyons and metered how much lumber could be harvested so that the people didn't go up into the mountains and denude the mountains of all their lumber. Again, this idea of proper earth stewardship. And there are many, many examples like these that I could give you about how church leaders, following this idea that the earth is a living thing and that we have a responsibility toward it, a need to be good stewards of the earth, and that someday we will be held accountable for it. It's fascinating to me that in the Book of Mormon, Mormon chapter 8, 
when it's talking about the days in which we live, we have these verses, which are particularly poignant this year. Speaking about when the, you know, the gospel comes forth. Yea, it shall come in a day when there shall be heard of fires and tempests and vapors of smoke. Yea, it shall come in a day when there shall be great pollutions upon the earth. Um, you know, if for one who understands the scriptures and the earth as a living creature, uh, a, a creation of God, when I say creature, I mean, a, you know, I don't mean a, a mammal, but a creation of God uh, that is our stewardship as its inhabitants. I think it's important that we exercise great caution in how we treat the, the earth around us. I'm not saying that uh, there can't be hunting and fishing and so forth, but I'm talking about the proper balance for conservation. Um, we need to take into consideration the, mind, the, the needs of people around us. And those needs uh, can't be prioritized below other needs, but neither should they be put out of balance with that harmony that we're supposed to have with nature. That's my feeling. Yeah, I love this like re-emphasis on kind of waste not, want not, that uh, we need to avoid this kind of tragedy of the commons where we're just continuously using resources um, without knowing you know, to what end um, and then when that does happen, how that will negatively affect, you know, the poor and, and people who are, uh, you know, at all ends of the spectrum, um, within our, our, you know, world at, at large, but also within our communities. Um, and so, yeah, I really love that. And I think something you've really hit on there is the, the obligation we have to help the needy. That is one mm -hmm. of the church's main emphases is helping, helping the needy. When we talk about a lot of the things that we in first world countries do for our own personal economic benefit or pleasure, we sometimes forget that if we do them in the wrong way, the burden of that is going to fall primarily on, on the needy. They're the ones who are going to suffer more than those of us in first world communities where we, we're, we're enjoying the upside. They're going to be the ones who are hurt by the downside. So we have a spiritual obligation to help the needy. And sometimes we think we can do that by just, you know, giving them a meal. But the, in the long run, it's going to be far more important that we preserve the earth in a, in a way that allows the, the needy to live without being adversely affected by some of the things we do in the first world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, even the, the Pope, um, has kind of touched on this. I mean, I mean, he very explicitly has in his encyclical in discussing, you know, the, the opportunity that we have as Christians um, and people who believe in, in serving the poor and, and recognizing that, you know, that's our duty uh, to recognize, you know, the implications of our actions on other people um, and, and how directly those affect um, other people, especially those those most needy. Beyond the Block, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, is a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Join Brother Jones and Brother Knox, a Black Lifelong member and a queer convert theologian, respectively, as they read the scriptures through the lenses of their identities and others in an effort to bring the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints 
closer and more in line with its theology, which centers Christ's justice and compassion. New episodes every Monday. I'm, I, uh, obviously I'm, you know, we all, we all know this, that like earth stewardship and actually caring about climate change and, and like climate mitigation is, uh, can obviously be pulled from the church's mission, right. To take care of the poor. Like that is, that is so, it is so clear and obvious to me. Um, but I think that there is a, well, I think there's two things. One, um, because environmental issues have been so politicized, in at least the United States, um, that it's, I think it's hard for Latter-day Saints sometimes to like fully come around to like endorsing or being activists on behalf of the environment. Um, but I think the, the second thing, um, besides the politicization is that, I, I'm not really sure Latter-day Saints have a tremendous activist spirit, right? The, I'm not, I think, you know, some of our unresolved cultural traumas is just that we don't really want to stick our heads up and be the, the odd man's out. I think we'd rather, you know, we'd rather fall in line. I think McKay Coppins has written, uh, you know, pretty, pretty good about that in the Atlantic about how Latter-day Saints want to be seen as, you know, the most American, uh, people that there are. Um, and so do you have any, do you have any thoughts to the, those two aspects of environmental issues, um, within our community in regards to both the politicization of it and, uh, our kind of reticence to be activists? Yeah, I think I, I worry about the politicization of it because that leads to the kind of tribalism I was describing earlier, which in turn leads to impasse and not progress. I think the greatest progress occurs when people of, of differing minds get together and discuss ways in which they can move forward in common. Uh, and so I think that the, the greatest hope for making major progress in this realm is by people with diverse opinions getting together and, and discussing commonalities to begin with. And then I think once, once there's progress, uh, much more can be done. In terms of individual Latter-day Saints, there is of course a scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants that says that individual members of the church should be here's the word, actively engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness. Uh, the, this sort of fall in line, you know, want to be paradigmatic American thing is actually a historical um, phenomenon. Maybe I can sort of describe the way it, it worked historically. In the days of Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith was considered to be a, a religious revolutionary and a social revolutionary. When the Latter-day Saints moved west under Brigham Young, they were considered to be a, a pioneering people who focused a lot on the land, about their own personal home production, and they avoided a lot of commercialism uh, during that time period. And they were also, again, considered to be revolutionaries because of their form of marriage and other things that they did. That A lot of the cooperative movements that they had were seen as not being uh, consistent with the normal type of uh, economics that you saw in other parts of the United States. Um, <laughs> so they were looked upon as being a strange people. With the, with the Wilfred Woodruff Manifesto of 1890 and the subsequent uh, integration of Latter-day Saints into Mormon society, there was, as Kathleen Flake has pointed out in a very good book, th this uh, compromise that occurred between American society generally and Latter-day Saints society. And the, the compromise essentially was this, 
that America would look the other way while those who had been practicing polygamy died out. As long as they didn't make any more new polygamous marriages. And in turn, the Latter-day Saints would agree to meld into American society. So they went from being on the fringes of American society socially at the, during the latter part of the 19th century to being paradigmatic Americans by the time you get into the middle of the 20th century. And because that's the only time period that living Latter-day Saints know, they think that that's always the way things were and that they, they need to sort of be melted into the American environment and not uh, looking for ways to change the, the way they're behaving as the only way they can be. When in fact, if you look back historically, you can see that the change is constant and that the what we should be as human beings and as Latter-day Saints in particular is trying to do the most good in whatever way is best for us in our particular period of life. You know, as a, as a young father uh, or my wife as a young mother, we spent a lot of time taking care of our kids and we didn't have as much time to do some other things that we, we may have wanted to do because of that. I think seasons of our lives do dictate much of what we can do, but there's certainly room for people to be actively engaged in good causes, including causes of earth stewardship. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, you're definitely right. And I, I, sometimes I wish that we, uh, we had a better sense of how we were on the margins of, of, of society, because I, you know, when I think of Jesus, I, Jesus existed on the margins of society. That's where, that's where people who suffer are. That's, you know, the marginalized and the poor, that's where they are. And that's where Jesus went to minister. And, uh, that I, I wish that, I wish that we had that more in our, in our cultural memory of the time that we existed on the margins of the American community, right? Because that way we might be able to draw upon more cultural compassion for the people who actively are on the, on the margins of our society right now. And even on the, the margins of our own LDS community, right? In terms of like queer, queer identities or racial minorities that, you know, the, there are people who exist on the margins and we, we seem to have forgotten that we began on the margins and that's where we were born. And that ultimately I think we need to try and find our way back there. Cause that's, I think where Jesus wants us to be. I think uh, with our humanitarian work, particularly in the last couple of decades, we're seeing far more outreach to those who are on the margins. I also think that because the, the church is becoming a global organization over time, that we're seeing much more diversity in terms of viewpoints on a lot of a lot of issues, and with that, uh, a greater reach outreach to those who, in the past, may have been ignored. If you look at the demographics of the church, you know, in the middle 20th century, the church was primarily American, and so American culture, uh, American architecture, American music—all of those things seem to be the the what characterized the church. Today. The church is primarily not American, and Christianity generally, and our church in particular, has basically begun to grow strongest south of the equator. So the greatest growth in our church and in Christianity generally is occurring in Africa. It's occurring in um, the Philippines. It's occurring in Latin America. And so as the number of people in the church who live in those communities increases, then I think you'll see greater and greater diversity um, 
understood and experienced by those who may have grown up in a principally American society. So those those who grew up in Utah were used to a kind of a monochromatic church. And what we're seeing now is a, a much more diversified church, uh, something that many people don't know. If, if you, for example, let's, let's talk about uh, people of African descent in the church. When I was a child, I saw none in, when I lived in Utah or in small branches of the church elsewhere. Uh, but today, if you count up, the church does not keep race statistics, which I think is a healthy thing. We don't log what your race is on your membership record. But if you just do the math in your heads and say, all right, if you take the number of church members in Africa where the church is growing rapidly, and you take the number of church members in places like Brazil and other parts, particularly northern Brazil and the northeastern part of South America, where a lot of escaped slaves ended up uh, living and, and growing, and if you take the number in the Caribbean and you take the number of African-American saints in the United States and so forth, and you add them all together, you probably have somewhere around a million church members of African descent. That's equal to the entire size of the church when I was a child, you know, virtually. So, and, and similarly, the number of Latin members over time has grown dramatically um, if you look at the, the church populations outside of the United States, you look at Brazil, you look at Mexico, and so forth. So I think, I think over time, we're going to see more and more understanding on the part of church members who are used to only one way of seeing things. They'll see a much broader world church instead of uh, just a, a Utah church of their childhood. Yeah, I think that will be that'll be a, a good thing ultimately because just like you know the theme of what we've been talking about is the diversity and and a broad reading of reality is ultimately going to be the thing that is going to be big enough to to create compassion and generosity within us. And I and I've been blessed to travel a lot in my career, and I I, I deeply believe that things like missions that allow people to go to a different culture. Uh, within the United States, if they're assigned within the United States and outside of the United States. I think that helps to increase an understanding of how things can be. When I, when I lived in Japan, for example, I went to Japan as a 19-year-old missionary and I brought with me certain ideas that I had developed as a youth growing up. Uh, let's just take something simple like manners. You know, I was taught that when you sit at the dinner table, there is a specific space around you and if you wanted something that was outside of that space, you were not to reach across another person to get that. Instead, you asked that person to pass it to you. That was the custom that I understood. When I got to Japan, particularly during my years after my mission, when I was working as a civilian over there, I had Japanese people tell me, you know, you Americans are so funny said, you're, you're sitting at the table and the salt shaker is with arm's reach of you. And instead of just kindly reaching out there and grabbing the salt shaker and pulling it to yourself, you tap the person on the shoulder next to you who's eating. You force that person to interrupt his or her meal to do for you what you could do for yourself. Now, isn't that strange? Or they'd say, you know, you Americans are really strange. You climb into a bathtub full of clean water. Then you get a bar of soap and you proceed to wash all the dead cells <laughs> off of yourself into the water. 
and it's floating as this mass of dead, rotting material on the surface of the water. And you then bathe yourself in it as you stand up those dead cells and that soap scum, it coats your body and you get out of the tub and you're filthy. Whereas we in Japan, we shower off first and then we get into the water to soak. So I'd hear things like that and, and it would enlighten me. I would say, you know what? There are things we can learn from every culture. There are things that we could perhaps do better or at least differently and not consider to be wrong. Uh, I think cultural ethnocentrism is a, again, one of those things that leads us to tribalism in a way that's unnecessary. And I also think confining intellectually and spiritually. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Ken Wilber, um, but he uh, he's a spiritual psychology kind of guy and um, that he uh, he's got kind of these this map of like spiritual development, you, you, you start off as like egocentric that you're just you, and then you, you graduate to ethnocentrism. And then beyond that, there's ecocentrism or like biocentrism, which is like you identify with like, with like all of the earth. And then beyond that, there's like cosmics, cosmocentrism, which is like you experience yourself as being like what we would call a child of God. Um, and, uh, I think, I think the, the, the center of gravity obviously is, is for cultural identity is in ethnocentrism. And so you have to do like no work to get to ethnocentric. And that's where a lot of people live their entire lives is in ethnocentrism. And they don't really realize that there are, there are further journeys to go on and further identities to like really to rest into. And so I think I very much resonate with that. And I think the gospel teaches that when we are self-centered, when we are looking inward is when we are developing the least spiritually. And when we turn outward in that way you've described, that's when we are growing the most spiritually ourselves and helping advance God's cause the best. Well, I, I was just thinking, kind of um, pondering these ideas. And I think that's, that's a mindset shift that the church um, is really emphasizing right now, but also something that we as members need to absorb is that, that cultural shift outward um, as well that, you know, it's time to re-embed ourselves in that idea that's expressed within the scriptures rather than something that's kind of embedded within a social culture um, because it's there. I mean, if, if we read the scriptures, we find that that's what we're taught. Um, that's what's emphasized within the scriptures. That's what's emphasized within the church. Um, but right now, like you said, Madison, it's so embedded within our kind of uh, social culture uh, of just kind of that, that monochromatic idea um, like you said, um, you know, that, that we need to shift away from that perspective and, and remind ourselves what Jesus was actually teaching, what the church is teaching, um, because it's not, that's not what we believe, <laughs> even if we're not as good at practicing that. Um, Let's uh, let's draw this uh, to its end. I want to ask you, Rick. I know you're writing a book about, on John Wesley Powell and the Grand Canyon. What what drew you to that topic? I spent a lot of years preparing a book with two co-authors called Massacre at Mountain Meadows, and uh, also working on a sequel that's nearly finished. And the sequel, in particular, follows those who carried out the massacre over the next. Two, two to three decades in particular. And during that time period, they're fugitives on the run. And they find themselves particularly out in 
southern Utah, particularly southeastern Utah. And they run into John Wesley Powell's survey. Initially, as uh, Powell and his men are you know, exploring the Green and Colorado Rivers, and then uh, between those trips and after those trips, as they are in Kanab uh, in that area as their base. And so as I began studying the Mountain Meadows Massacre, I began to run into Powell and his men and reading their, their journals and other sources. And that got me deeply interested in Powell. And so I decided that I would write a series of three books, one on each of Powell's river trips, the, the most famous 1869 trip, of course, which took them from Green River, Green River Wyoming, all the way down to um, what was called Call's Landing then, it's underneath Lake Mead today. And then Powell and came back in 1870. As you, I think as many people may know, the, the 1869 trip uh, did not result in the amount of science being completed that Powell had originally anticipated because of the hardships they faced and the, and the struggles they had. So he decided we've got to do it all over again. So in 1870, he came back to Utah and did what he did before the 1869 trip, which was to consult with Brigham Young. And so he, and many people don't know about that early consultation that preceded his 1869 trip, but I'll, I'll, I'll be writing about it. So in 1870, he meets Brigham Young and other people down near Parowan, Utah, and they go on, a, on an exploration, a wagon exploration up and over the mountains and past Penguich Lake and down to the Perea, looking for ultimately places for, in Brigham Young's mind, for settlement, and in John Wesley Powell's mind, places where he can have food drops for his men and him on the next river trip, which is in 1871. So in 1871, he travels again from Green River, Wyoming. He gets off at the crossing of the Fathers, which is now under Lake Powell. And uh, most of his men go down to what's now Lee's Ferry. Lee wasn't there yet, but they got off there. And, and uh, they were interacting again with these same people from the Mountain Meadows Massacre, uh, even at, at what was Lee's Ferry at the time. And then they, they go to Kanab and they make Kanab their winter quarters and they come back for the third river trip, which is from Lee's Ferry all the way down to uh, Kanab Canyon where they ultimately get out. So yeah, three trips, 1869, 71 and 72. And I'm going to be writing a, a book on each one of those trips. And so as part of my research, of course I do the the archival research, and, and I've learned over time that there are essentially uh, two major groups of historians who have studied Powell and his, and his work. You have uh, some books that have been written by university scholars, people like Wallace Stegner, that uh, have largely been written from the vantage point of the academy. And then you have another vast body of material that has been written by people who are either river guides or for example, historians of the canyon, those who are sort of on the ground public historians. So you got the academic historians and you got the public historians and, and river people. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm trying to meld into one narrative, the learnings from all of these groups joined with my own uh, observations. So every year I take a trip on the green or Colorado. This year I did, uh, I did hundred miles of the Colorado through the Grand Canyon. I've got oh a 17 day Grand Canyon trip planned for next year. I've, uh, I've been, uh, you know, this year also I did a segment of the green. So that adds to my personal observations. I, I have a rule that if I'm writing about the environment, 
I need to see what I'm writing about. Otherwise, I'm writing for my imagination, and that's called fiction. That's a good rule. <laughs> yeah, that is. <laughs> so I am a, I'm a great lover of the, the rivers. I love spending time on the rivers. Um, I, I like meeting people that I see on the rivers. And it's, it's part of what drives me in terms of the environment. The other thing that I do is I, I own some property in the Grand Canyon, uh, or excuse me, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And so I spent a lot of time reading about the, the GYE, as we call it, uh, the flora and the fauna and the history and the environment and the, the struggles and the, and the future and so on. So those things... As I said, I read I read vastly, read widely, but those are two topics that have remained on my list: uh, the rivers and also the Yellowstone area, great, greater Yellowstone ecosystem. It's so fascinating. I had no idea about, I mean, any of those trips at all, um, and that Brigham Young was involved with any of those either. So interesting. Yeah. So most people don't know that, that Powell met with Brigham Young before he left on his 1869 trip. But the, you, you remember the railroad was completed in, in 1869. And he, he basically gets his boats transported from Chicago where they were manufactured to Green River. And then they offload them there on May 24th, 1869, they start down the river. But before he does that, he goes into Salt Lake and he visits with Brigham Young and he visits with some of the newspaper people and others, he's looking for maps. He knows that Latter-day Saints have pioneered a lot of that area. And so when he's traveling and, and he and his men are writing in their journals or reminiscing afterwards, they talk about the various maps or other information that they had to guide them. And part of what they had came from Latter-day Saint sources before his trip. Wow. I guess on kind of a another note um but extending from from your experience on the river uh, you know it sounds like much of your your growing up and um you know the influence that the landscape had on you during that time um but also you know well into your your current um exploration of wilderness um has also kind of indicated or contributed to your faith in god um, can you expound upon that for us? As I mentioned, as a child looking at nature around me and living much of my life outdoors, I came to feel inspiration, a tremendous sense of inspiration, revelation, if you will, a spiritual confirmation living in that greater landscape. And I learned to respect it. And I learned to see it as a creation of God, a stewardship for which we're going to be held accountable in our use of it. And that has remained with me throughout my life. When I'm traveling, I don't know if you've done river travel before, but you know there are exciting moments when you're doing whitewater and there are quiet moments when you just sit and think as you're drifting along with the current. And when I have a chance to be in the wilderness and to look around me and to see the rocks and all their strata over time showing the geological history of the earth, when I have a chance to see the, the flora and all of the many types of plants uh, including native and invasive, when I have a chance to see the, the fauna and you know what's happened over time, uh, extinction of some species, other species you know, changing their their habitat or you know being on their on the verge of extinction or facing other difficulties, all of that uh, all of that affects me because I see all of this as God's God's creation. So 
Uh, when I read the scriptures, I, I often read them, drawing out from them messages about the earth and stewardship of the earth. You know, the, the parable of the talents in the New Testament that Jesus tells is a really interesting one to me because sometimes we, we look at it economically as meaning you got to take your resources and you got to multiply them. But I also see it in another way in that we're given a stewardship and we're ultimately held accountable for that stewardship, whatever it happens to be. And if we use what we've been given wisely, I think someday uh, God will bless us for having done so. And if we wrongly exploit the resources around us, then we're going to be held accountable. I, I've heard people use scripture to say, well, in the, in the beginning, it says man will have dominion over the earth. And I say, yes, but we've also been given a set of scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants about unrighteous dominion. And I think that unrighteous dominion is not only over people, but it's also over the other creations of God. Yeah, I think Madison and I would both uh, very much agree with that. <laughs> yeah, you got to take it all together. You can't just you just can't just cherry pick verses out. Yes. You know, you can't. Uh, what, what is that called? Proof texting. Proof texting. Yeah, you can't proof text. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rick. This has been a fabulous conversation to have with you. Any final thoughts? Any Anything final you want to share with us? No, I'm, I'm grateful uh, that you, you have this program and I'm grateful for the invitation. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for joining us in the Spiritual Wilds on this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you're vibing with this podcast, please share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors and consider leaving us a five-star rating or written review through the podcasting app of your choice. Screenshot your review and tag us on Instagram or Twitter, and we'll hook you up with some free Bristlecone Fireside stickers. This season's beautiful cover art was provided by Ash Rowan Designs, and our fresh new music was composed by Brenton Jackson. Bristlecone Firesides is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. The Dialogue Podcast Network features many great podcasts exploring LDS faith through diverse and rigorous scholarship. Please visit dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network to learn more. For more from Madison, Abby, and the Bristlecone family, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content on faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Red Rock Deserts and high mountains of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to become one with this good and wild earth.